Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Hey everyone, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to Finance Explained. This week, I've got three major financial headlines for you. How the market rallied on Friday to just offset a week's worth of losses in the face of rising interest rates and inflation concerns. The biggest economic data release of the week, the February employment report. And on the political front, the Senate passed the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill Saturday morning. And after that, we'll take a deep dive into inflation, since that's the biggest driver of market performance right now. But first, up first, let's talk about those three big financial headlines of the week. Number one, stocks surged on Friday following the release of the February employment report, and it was just enough to offset the losses from the rest of the week. The S&P 500, which represents the largest 500 stocks in the U.S. market, finished the week up 0.8%. The NASDAQ 100, which represents the 100 largest and most actively traded stocks on the tech-heavy NASDAQ exchange, was down nearly 2%. Small-cap stocks sold off slightly for the week, down just 0.5%. And value stocks continue to outperform growth in a recovery environment, with value stocks up nearly 3% for the week, while growth stocks were down almost two. The market rallied on Friday, offsetting what would have been another week of losses, the third consecutive down week in a row, as long-term bond yields continued to rise. Long-term bond yields are now back to pre-pandemic levels, with 30-year Treasury bond yields having increased nearly 40% since the start of the year, and 10-year Treasury bond yields are up 70%, all since the start of 2021. We're already seeing this carry over to mortgage rates, which this week crossed the 3% for a 30-year mortgage mark for the first time since last summer. It is these rapidly rising interest rates that have everyone talking and concerned about higher inflation, which I'll dive into in great detail momentarily. But now let's talk about the second biggest news of the week, the economic release of the monthly employment report. The first Friday of every month brings the detailed employment situation report for the month prior. February saw 379,000 jobs added to employer payrolls for the month, a huge improvement from the very week 49,000 that were added in January. This drove the headline unemployment rate down to 6.2%. On the surface, this all seems like good news and spurred the market on enough to rally nearly 2% on Friday alone. But you knew there was a but coming, right? The labor market is still 9.5 million jobs short of where we were pre-pandemic. There are 4.2 million fewer people in the workforce, meaning people actively working or looking for work, than there were just a year ago, and that is disproportionately women. Women represent 2.3 million of the labor force decline, or 55% of that total. And while we saw the headline unemployment rate improve for February overall, it actually got worse for Black Americans and for the least skilled workers, those without a high school diploma. These disparities are now part of the maximum employment goal the Fed looks at when setting monetary policy. 
We saw Fed Chair Jerome Powell speak to Congress last week and at a Wall Street Journal job summit this week, where he very clearly reiterated the Fed's commitment to accommodative monetary policy until the labor market achieves a, quote unquote, broad and inclusive level of maximum unemployment, which we still clearly fall short of. On the flip side, the Fed's accommodative monetary policy is also part of what's fueling inflation concerns. To give you a little bit of perspective, we lost more than 22 million jobs in two months at the start of the pandemic. It took more than two years to lose 8.7 million jobs back during the Great Recession, and it took over four years to recover them all. We've already recovered 12.9 million jobs just since April, which is incredible, but we are still short more jobs than at the worst point of the Great Recession a decade ago. Last but not least, the last major financial headline of the week, most likely to impact your family finances, is the stimulus package. After a week of debate in the Senate, with some changes, the Senate finally passed the $1.9 trillion stimulus package on Saturday morning by a vote of 50 to 49. One Republican senator had to depart for a funeral, so it didn't force the vice president to cast the party-line tie-breaking vote. So what changed in the Senate version of the bill this week? A few things. One, the Senate bill does not include the $15 federal minimum wage. Two, weekly federal unemployment benefits were scaled back from the proposed $400 a week to $300 a week and extended to the end of August. They also made the first $10,200 of benefits people received throughout 2020 non-taxable for households with incomes below $150,000. Finally, they also narrowed the income window for households who will receive $1,400 stimulus checks. You are eligible if you are single and make less than $75,000, but it goes to zero if you make over $80,000. It's $150,000 and goes to zero at $160,000 if you are married and filing jointly. You can learn more about all of these major financial headlines for the week, as well as the latest on weekly jobless claims, vaccinations, and more in my Monday Market Update, linked up in this week's show notes. Now it's time for our weekly deep dive. This week, let's talk about inflation, since that seems to be the cause for all the major moves in the market lately. Why are people so worried about inflation? And why does it have such an impact on the stock and bond markets? First, let's make sure we are all on the same page about what inflation actually means. Inflation, in the simplest of terms, is increasing prices, and it's measured by looking at all the things we purchase and looking at how the price of that same basket of goods changes from month to month and year to year. Any of us who've been doing the grocery shopping in our homes, you don't have to tell us there's inflation. We've seen it and felt it. I know I have for sure had to adjust our grocery budget this year. And yes, part of it is because we are eating at home more and my husband is home for three meals a day too, but part of it is definitely that the same stuff we always bought now costs more too. So why does this happen? If you can think back to high school economics and those basic graphs of supply and demand where prices set by the point where they intersect, 
That's what explains inflation too. In general, it's because something has happened to either increase demand or shrink supply, and that results in prices going up. Right now, there are five different drivers collecting, collectively causing higher inflation concerns. One, a recovering and growing economy. Two, increased money supply. Three, increased government spending. Four, pandemic-related supply shortages. Five, all of which of those contribute to expectations of increased inflation going forward. And the mere expectation can actually lead to inflation itself. Some of these things are causing increased demand. Some of these are causing decreased supply, both of which are contributing to, if not higher prices already, concerns that there are going to be higher prices in the very near future. So let's break each of these down in a little more detail to talk about what's actually happening in our economy and what people are seeing now. First, the economic recovery. There are some pundits who say this is just normal inflation that happens when the economy is in recovery. And there is some truth to that. Often in a recession, demand falls and spending drops. So employers reduce production to save money. They lay people off and they don't wanna ramp back up until they know demand is really there again. So demand increases ahead of supply and this can result in higher prices. So there's definitely some of that happening right now. Most economists predict four to 5% GDP growth in 2021, driven by the especially weak comparison in the first half of 2020 last year. That's definitely above average growth for the US economy and is likely just by the simple nature of more rapid growth to cause a little bit of inflation. Driver number two is the increased money supply. This is the big one. If I had to rank these five drivers of inflation in terms of what people are most worried about, it's this one. Since the start of 2020, the money supply in the United States has increased by $2.8 trillion, a 70% increase just since the end of 2019. By comparison, if we go back and look at the Great Recession, when the Fed stepped up to the plate to buy all those toxic mortgage assets to save Wall Street and Main Street, from the end of 2007 to 2019, the money supply increased by just $2.6 trillion over 12 years. And over that 12 years, by the way, the money supply tripled. At the end of 2007, the money supply total was only $1.4 trillion dollars. So pre-Great Recession, the money supply had been growing at about 6 to 7% annually. Since 2008, the growth rate nearly doubled, over 11% per year. And in 2020, just one year, it grew by 70%, $2.8 trillion, as much as it grew in the prior 12 years combined. So why is that concerning? And who is responsible for this? In the simplest of terms, think of it this way. If suddenly you have 70% more money, you might spend and invest more, right? This is like giving the economy as a whole 70% more dollars. More dollars increases demand. 
It means $2.8 trillion more dollars in the economy chasing the same amount of goods, services, and assets, which leads to price increases, also known as inflation. The increase in the money supply can entirely be attributed to an expansion of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Their balance sheet grew by $3.4 trillion in 2020 as they bought nearly $1 trillion in mortgage-backed securities and $2.5 trillion more in U.S. Treasury bonds. This is effectively how the Fed quote-unquote prints money today. They create new funds on their balance sheet and use them to purchase financial assets in the open market, putting newly created funds into circulation. But why would they do this to such an extreme level? The Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States. Their official job is to promote maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term interest rates, all through monetary policy. The tools they use to enact this policy include things like setting the short-term lending rates via the federal funds rate and controlling the overall money supply. When the economy gets shaky, when we are faced with lots of economic uncertainty, like we experienced at the start of 2020, the markets, both the stock and bond market, can freeze up or go into free fall, exacerbating an already difficult economic environment. To soften the impact and stabilize the market, to make sure businesses and individuals can still borrow if they need to through harder times, they lower interest rates and increase the money supply. They call this accommodative monetary policy. It is intended to stimulate demand in the economy at the very time when demand otherwise might be falling. This might mean businesses lay off fewer employees or that banks can be more lenient and extend forbearances to customers who need to pause their mortgages. Now, the multi-trillion dollar question, did we need as big an increase in the money supply to stabilize markets in one year as we had over the last 12 years combined, including during a period where there was a massive financial crisis? In the current downturn, banks are really fine. There are no toxic assets that need to be bought, and their balance sheets have been healthy. Further driving inflation concerns is they are also still holding to this accommodative policy. In the last few months, the Fed has changed the wording on some of its long-term policy objectives, which has further heightened concerns that inflation will be higher soon. Back in 2012, the Fed put out a statement on their long-run goals for monetary policy. In this statement, they had stated employment objectives based on their economists' estimates of long-run normal rate of unemployment of 4.4% and longer-term inflation expectations anchored at 2%. This past August, they updated that statement, making two key changes. One, they prioritized employment ahead of all other objectives and eliminated the 4.4% unemployment rate estimate as their definition of full employment. They now define the maximum level of employment as a, and I quote, broad-based and inclusive goal that is not directly measurable and changes over time owing largely to non-monetary factors that affect the structure and dynamics of the labor market. In plain English, They are no longer going to start to raise interest rates just based on the headline unemployment rate, when that may mask what is going on for various segments, industries, or socioeconomic groups, 
within the broader economy. If you look at the employment situation report that just came out Friday, you'll see that while headline unemployment is down to 6.2%, the unemployment rate for those without a high school diploma is still double digits. It's 9.9% and 8.5% for Black and Hispanic Americans, respectively. And if you account for discouraged and underemployed workers, the rate is 11.1%, nearly double the headline rate. We also still remain 9.5 million jobs short of total non-farm payrolls pre-pandemic. So if the goal is broad-based and inclusive, if the intention is to be sure disparities are eliminated and all those lost jobs are recovered, for perspective, it took four and a half years to recover the 8.7 million jobs lost during the Great Recession. So the market is worried. If we have accommodative monetary policy for years, we are very likely to fuel higher inflation. This brings me to the second change the Fed made to its statement in August. Ever since they announced the 2% inflation rate objective, inflation has never consistently achieved that level. It's always fallen a little short. Therefore, the Fed announced, and again, I quote, in order to anchor longer-term inflation expectations at this level, the committee seeks to achieve inflation that averages 2% over time, and therefore judges that following periods when inflation has been running persistently below 2%, appropriate monetary policy will likely aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time. Again, in plain English, they're going to allow inflation to exceed 2% for some time going forward, given its run below it, especially so long as their other objective, like maximum employment, has not yet been achieved. So they basically, in their own words, have said there will be higher inflation. It likely won't be hyperinflation or double digits. They would act to rein it in before that happens, but they will give it some runway and it will be allowed to exceed 2%, which it hasn't really done in any sustained way in well over a decade. And until then, they will continue to keep interest rates low and the money supply increasing. Now let's talk about driver number three, increased government spending. In addition to the 70% increase in the money supply, we also have had a huge increase in government spending, which can also increase demand in the economy and drive inflation. In 2020, Congress passed $3.5 trillion in government stimulus response to the pandemic. The Senate voted on Saturday to pass another $1.9 trillion, bringing the grand total to $5.4 trillion of stimulus spending in the last year. I think sometimes when people talk in millions, billions, and trillions, we don't always appreciate how much money that truly is. So let me try to frame it for you in a few different ways to hopefully convey the immensity of this amount of money. In 2019, according to the Congressional Budget Office, total government spending for the year, pre-pandemic, was $4.4 trillion. The government only collected $3.5 trillion in revenue, so we already were overspending by nearly a trillion dollars a year. The government still spent on all it normally spends on in 2020, plus what will now total another 15 months worth of normal government spending or 18 months worth of government revenues. At the end of 2019, 
the national debt was $22.8 trillion. The government already spends more than it brings in every year in taxes, which is how the debt has gotten to this point to begin with. So all of the $5.4 billion in stimulus spending is going to be fully funded by issuing more debt, increasing the national debt by nearly 25%, the interest from which will now add to the annual government spending for years to come, further widening the annual deficit spending. How does that compare to the overall economy? 2019 GDP, the measure of the entire U.S. economy, all the goods and services, public and private investment, government spending, and net exports, totaled $21.4 trillion. The government has now committed to spending a full quarter's worth of GDP in stimulus response. Lastly, let's look at how this compares to the government spending response to the financial crisis that triggered the Great Recession. In total, the government spent $1.8 trillion in response to the Great Recession. This included bailing out Fannie and Freddie, the federally-backed mortgage companies. This included TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program that helped banks and financial institutions get all the bad derivatives and mortgages off their balance sheets. Some argue the government response to the Great Recession was too small, and that's why it took the labor market more than four years to recover. And because many have given that criticism, we've now committed to spending three times what was spent in the last recession. So has it helped? And why does increased government spending trigger inflation concerns? Of the $5.4 trillion, 1.7 of it, or about a third, has been or will be sent directly to individuals, either in the form of stimulus checks or via expanded federal unemployment programs and benefits. I'm singling this part out because we can look at how the first trillion dollars of it that was already distributed, what kind of impact it has had. What we see in the resulting economic data is a big boost to disposable personal income when these checks go out and as these expanded unemployment benefits are made available. But instead of people spending it, most people instead are saving it. How do we know? Because we can compare aggregate disposable income to aggregate personal consumption expenditures. That data gets released monthly by the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Expenditures have not yet recovered, despite income being well above pre-pandemic levels, boosted by the stimulus. And the implied savings rate, the difference between the two, has doubled over the last year. Now, there's a few reasons for this, too. One, people can't buy what they want due to supply shortages. Many of you shared your experiences over the last year of inability to buy things like building supplies, appliances, computers, or computer parts and furniture. Supply shortages have created production halts at major manufacturers as well. If you can't buy what you want, you may be just choosing not to spend it. Or in some cases, supply shortages can contribute to inflation as well. Second, high unemployment has also contributed to higher savings rates. People are still worried about job loss, so they're saving more until the labor market is more stable to protect themselves in the event they would lose their job. Third, people can't buy what they want due to pandemic restrictions. Consider where most people spend their money that they aren't already. We're spending on all our basic necessities like food and shelter, 
but we aren't spending on extras like going out to eat, travel, and entertainment. And in, mean, and in many instances, we can't even if we wanted to, or even if we can, we don't feel comfortable doing so. So no matter how much stimulus the government put out, it wouldn't boost the economy until first, everything is actually fully reopened. And second, even if it's reopened, consumers have to feel comfortable and confident resuming normal spending habits. That being said, the stimulus has well-positioned households financially, potentially creating pent-up demand for when things do open up again. But this is also adding to higher inflation expectations. So I mentioned this briefly before, that supply shortages are preventing people from buying and spending their stimulus funds. But let's talk about this fourth driver a little more and how and why there are shortages and how this is also a contributing factor to inflation expectations. At the height of the pandemic, various parts of industries, from raw material extraction to manufacturing and shipping, completely shut down all over the world for various periods of time. In a world where every part of the supply chain holds significant inventory, there would be some buffer against this disruption in production. But businesses have very actively, for the last 50-plus years, worked to lower inventory levels as much as possible. Holding inventory costs money. And so in a modern world of just-in-time inventory, businesses have reduced these capital needs. But it makes the supply shortages impact almost immediate and far more significant. Production is beginning to come back online, but many places still have health restrictions in place in terms of employee spacing or number of people allowed in a facility, for example. In some sectors like healthcare supplies, things like gloves and PPE, we've actually seen huge increases in demand at the same time we've seen supply shortages. There are even bottlenecks in shipping, with ports backed up and more ships arriving faster than dock ships can be unloaded. There aren't enough truck drivers to pick up and drive the delivery trucks. There are many kinks and holdups in the supply chain right now. And as demand starts to ramp up as the economy recovers faster than supply can keep up, this drives price increases. Think of it this way. If your refrigerator just died and you have to replace it and are told it's a three-month back order to get one, what are you suddenly willing to pay for a refrigerator? any refrigerator, even if it's a used one, just to simply have one, or even just a replacement part to make the old one work temporarily, which are also hard to come by. So these supply chain shortages are also impacting inflation concerns. Last but not least, the last driver of inflation concerns is actually just the expectation of inflation itself. So far, we've covered four drivers contributing to concerns or expectations that higher inflation is headed our way. A recovering and growing economy, the increased money supply, increased government spending, and pandemic-related supply shortages. And all of these are driving expectations of increased inflation going forward, which in and of itself can actually make higher inflation happen. It kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. People believe prices are going to increase, so they want to buy ahead of those price increases, which increases demand today and increases prices. Now, if the Fed targets 2% long-run average inflation, and if everyone is predicting higher inflation, how do we know what prices are actually doing across the economy? 
There are two major price indices put out monthly, the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, and the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index, or PCE. They both measure a basket of goods and services purchased by consumers and track how the price of that basket changes over time. The change is how we measure inflation. The CPI uses a basket of goods and services with relatively fixed weights, while the PCE is based on what people are actually buying in a given month. Because of this, it accounts for things like substitutions when something gets too expensive and tends to show slightly lower inflation over time than the CPI. But in general, they move fairly similarly. The Fed relies on the PCE because of this more real-time change. They believe it's a more comprehensive basket of goods and services, too. So when they talk about targeting a 2% long-run average for inflation, they're watching the PCE. So if we look at the PCE, are we actually seeing higher inflation? If we look at the actual measure of the PCE price index, the latest level for January 2021 was up 1.45% versus a year ago. Over the last year, one of the big things that has offset higher prices in areas like food is lower energy prices. According to the CPI, food prices have been up about 4% ever since the start of the pandemic. But lower energy price comparisons, which were down as much as double digits during 2020, helped offset that. Energy prices have now recovered to essentially pre-pandemic levels, so we're no longer going to have that double-digit benefit offset. That alone will drive up the PCE price index as we move on into 2021. Another place we are seeing inflation expectations in the market? Higher interest rates. This has been the main driver of the stock and bond market sell-off in recent weeks. When investors think higher inflation is coming, they demand higher interest rates on longer-term bond maturities to compensate them for that risk. Since the start of 2021, we have seen interest rates on 5, 10, and 30-year Treasury bonds increase significantly. Five-year rates have more than doubled. Ten-year rates have increased from just below 1% to over 1.5% at the close of Friday. 30-year rates have increased from 1.65% to 2.3%. As an aside, almost exactly a year ago, 10-year Treasury bonds hit their lowest yield ever, 0.498%, just before the economy shut down due to the pandemic. And to give you some historical perspective, rates are still very low but the rapid increase over the last two months is making waves in the markets. When bond yields increase, bond prices fall. Rising interest rates also cause the stock market to sell off. Why? Because stocks are no longer the only source of return in town. For months, with interest rates at rock-bottom levels, investors were plunging funds into the stock market as the only source of potential higher returns. As interest rates rise now, they can get higher returns with less risk elsewhere. The risk of inflation and higher interest rates also puts downward pressure on corporate earnings and decreases valuation ratios, the multiplier we put on corporate earnings to justify company stock prices, leading to overall lower market prices. 
So over the last few weeks, as we see longer-term interest rates continue to rise, we've seen bond and stock prices fall. And every time Fed Chair Powell comes out and holds to his accommodative monetary policy of low short-term rates and continuing to increase the money supply, given our far-from-recovered labor market, inflation expectations burn a little brighter. If you'd like to learn more about inflation from a historical perspective, as well as how inflation widens inequality and what you can do to shield your family finances from the impacts of inflation, check out my detailed blog post on higher inflation, also in today's show notes. Have a question about the economy or financial markets you'd like to hear covered on Finance Explained? Leave me a voice message. Just click the link in the show notes to record a message with your question or topic of interest, and I just might feature you on our next episode. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to catch each weekly episode of Finance Explained. I'd also love and appreciate your reviews. They are really critical for new podcasts especially. Thanks so much for your support. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures.